LinkedIn presents. From entrepreneurship to global business leadership, from challenges to self-discovery to our ever-changing future, what separates those who win and those who get passed by? This is the Yes Factor with Winnie Sun. Is social media bad for you? Like, does it suck your energy dry every day? Isn't it just an effective tool for communication, right? What about emojis? They bring the human touch, right? In fact, the 2022 study showed that the average daily social media usage of internet users worldwide amounted to 147 minutes per day. Well, today's interview, I think, is going to really stick with you. Celeste Headley's TED Talk alone, one of the most popular in TED Talk history, has garnered over 26 million downloads and growing. These are the topics that we're going to talk about today. She really gave me a different way to look at the power of conversation and social media. Celeste is an internationally recognized journalist and radio host, professional speaker, and author of the best-selling book, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, and also Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. Her latest is Speaking of Race, Why Everyone Needs to Talk About Racism and How to Do It. Celeste's TED Talk is one of the 10 most watched talks posted on TED's homepage. She has a 20-plus career in public radio, has been the executive producer of On Second Thought, and host of Newsweek's debate podcast, and much, much more. And last but not least, she's also the CEO of Headway DEI, which is a nonprofit that works to bring racial justice and equity to journalism. Friends, please join me in welcoming Celeste. So today's guest, let me just bring on up. Celeste, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's so great to be here. Well, it is such a treat to share this stage with you. You know, I have been following you, Celeste, for quite some time. And I got to tell you, when I read your bio, I was thinking to myself, she must literally be one of the busiest people that I have yet to meet. (laughs) Uh, Because your bio is incredible. Thanks. I think I've actually gotten to the point in my life where I've learned how to juggle things enough so that I really retain all of my leisure time. That was not all true for most of my life. Um, But I I spent a long time really studying how to avoid burnout. And so, yeah, I I get a lot done, but I I still have tons of time to just do lots of, you know, sort of meaningless texts. I have lots of hobbies. I garden, you know, I get plenty of off time. I love that. I garden too. I, I love this. Well, for those of you who are new to Celeste, let's just say she's an internationally recognized journalist, radio host, professional speaker, author of the best-selling book, We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter and Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. She is someone that you're going to really, really enjoy hearing from. And her latest is Speaking of Race, Why Everyone Needs to Talk About Racism and How to Do It. Now, her TEDx talk, 10 Ways to Have a Better Conversation, has been viewed over 26 million times. 26 whopping million times. Celeste's talk, I'm sure it's even bigger now. Celeste's talk is one of the 10 most watched talks posted on TED's homepage. And she has had a 20 plus year career in public radio and has been the executive producer of On Second Thought, a regular guest on NPR and American Public Media. She's the host of Newsweek's debate podcast, 
and so much more. But last but not least, Celeste is also the president and CEO of Headway DEI, a nonprofit that works to bring racial justice and equity to journalism. It is such a treat, Celeste, to have you with us. Um, when you hear that, I mean, honestly, for those of you who are just meeting Celeste for the first time, that's probably a third of her entire bio, but I think it gives you a good feel of just how incredible this person is. So tell me, Celeste, we got to start from the beginning. Tell us, if you don't mind, sort of the backstory of how you got to where you are today. We know you've had an incredible um, career in journalism, but how did it start? Tell me from the beginning, even when you were younger, did you think that this is something that you wanted to do when you grew up? No, um, I never wanted to be a journalist. <laughs> I'm actually, my all of my degrees, my master's degree and all that are in, in opera. I'm a professional opera singer, but I needed a day job. Musicians have to get, have a day job. So I accepted a job um, hosting a classical music show on the weekends for a public radio station. And from there, they just kept offering me free training to do reporting, to do culture reporting. And, you know, I don't think you should ever turn down free training, you know, give it a try. So I did that and it just turned out to be something I was really good at and enjoyed. And so the career grew from there and I had to get my training on the back end rather than having that as my degree. I ended up just constantly taking fellowships and training programs and, and continuing to grow in the career. So that's how that all got started was basically saying yes. Saying yes at the right time and say, not saying no to, to free training. I love yeah. that. I think if anything, we learned from that answer right now is the importance of not only, you know, saying yes to opportunities, but being open to improving our skill set. I love that. You know, your TEDx talk, 10 ways to have a better conversation. This was incredible. Celeste, I've seen this on YouTube. Incredible. I I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that even for you, this might have surprised you just how big and how much this resonated with so many across the globe. Let, let's start with that. Were you surprised by how well this yeah. was received? Yeah, I mean, that's a good guess because I had no idea. I mean, if I'd known it was going to have 26 million views and plus, I would have put makeup on. <laughs> um, I I had no idea. I mean, the prompt that they gave me was um, think of something that's going wrong in the world today and then tell us how to fix it, which honestly is a great prompt for any speech. Um so the one thing I knew as a journalist that was going wrong, it was that people aren't talking to one another, not with respect and civility. And that happens to be something that I know how to do. Like I can fix that. I didn't think it was particularly sexy or interesting. It's just something I was really interested in. So I was blown away when um, it started getting all those views. I remember when it went up on the front page of Ted and I started looking at the numbers. Someone was like, your, your talks on the front page. And I looked and I'm like, oh my gosh, it has 5,000 views. Holy cow. <laughs> I'm like, if it has 10,000, I'm going to have a cocktail. So yeah, I, it's been surprising the growth of it. Um, but it also means that people are looking for ways to improve their conversation. So I think that's a hopeful sign. It's interesting, Celeste, because it's incredible that so is this topic resonated with so many of us. But I think we can all relate to that. I mean, we all communicate, you know, all of us communicate. And in even if we don't speak, we communicate. But to, to always have that humility of saying, yeah, I want to know better ways of communicating with others and having better conversations. I guess I, I'm curious to see your thoughts on this. When you think about conversations, why are they so important? And 
you know, why do you think this is sort of a lost art? So first of all, there's nothing more important than conversation. Um, and I say that from the point of view of the fact that uh, our communication and our collaboration skills are the reason that Homo sapiens has been successful on the planet. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is something that evolutionary biologists and psychologists spend a long time trying to figure out because we're not particularly fast. We're not tough. You know, the, the air conditioning changes five to 10 degrees and, you know, we start shivering. So we're not, you know, all that strong of a species in it physically, but we can collaborate like nobody's business. We have the most sophisticated communication of any species, which means, you know, there's only two species that can take down a bison regularly, right? That's humans and wolves. And we do that because we're pack animals, meaning we can communicate with one another in such a way that we can take those down this incredibly impressive beast together. It also means that it, it, when there are threats that come along, if you're messing with one human being, you're almost always messing with more. So this is that number one, I, I don't think there is anything more important than our conversations and our communication with one another. The fact that it's a lost art is because we keep doing other things to replace conversation. I don't understand it. We have this superpower and then we try to replace it with emojis. We do this all the time. We're trying to find ways around talking to one another, which is ridiculous. That's like Serena Williams saying, you know, oh, you know what? I guess I'm going to try basketball. I mean, what a dumb idea. And yet that's a decision we make every single day. You know, you know, you and I have talked about this before we started the show is I have three young children, right? And I would say that seems to be something myself as a parent, I'm always sort of coaching my children about how to have conversations, how to have um, relatable, meaningful, and really productive conversations. Why do you think uh, children aren't taught the art of conversation? Um, there's a few reasons. There's a, you know, there's a bunch of different reasons for this. Part of it is that we make this basic mistake. We think that if you're a good talker, you're good in conversation. And that's just not the case. To be good in conversation, your listening skills have to be as good as your talking skills. And for some reason, we don't teach listening, even though you have to teach listening in order to get better at it. We don't just learn how to listen. So we have all these courses in public speaking and we never teach people how to listen. We need to acknowledge that listening is actually quite difficult. It is difficult to focus. It's it's difficult to bring to bear the energy that you need in order to listen to other people. And so that's something that we need to actually realize. Stop teaching public speaking. Most people are actually quite good at talking. It's the listening part that we have to teach. The other portion of this is that, okay, so let me put it this way. We have every single person has only a limited amount of social energy every day. And you can think of it like your gas tank and your gas tank empties out over the course of the day. We, we are spending that social energy on the wrong things. Meaning that let's say you go on social media. Social media is super great tool in some ways, but in terms of giving you back all that great biofeedback that lifts your mood and sparks up your brain and gives you um, and lowers your heart rate, lowers your stress levels, you don't get that from social media. You get that from either talking in person or on the phone. So when we're spending all of our social energy dollars in social media, which gives us nothing back, it, it actually takes energy from you. Then of course, by the end of the day, you'll get home and you're, you're too tired to call your friend. You're too tired to, to go across the street and say hello to your neighbor. And that's actually the conversation that would give you, that would be self-rewarding. 
we're making some wrong decisions and they're not particularly helpful for us. They're adding us, adding to our feelings of exhaustion. They're adding to our feelings of burnout. Whereas if we just leaned a little bit back into using our cell phones at least half the time as a phone, we would actually feel better. Wow. If we use our cell phone at least half of the time as a phone, we would feel so much better. That's powerful. Yeah. Celeste, let me ask you this. And people are listening are saying, okay, I get it. I need to listen more to have better conversations. Everybody's talking about the importance of social media. Of course, we know it's important for brand, brand building and whatnot, right? What is your percentage of your day look like? And how much of your time is spent on social media platforms, if, if at all? And how much of your time is spent having real conversations? So I limit all of my social media uses. I, I quit Facebook quite some time ago. The only two platforms I, I really use are Twitter, which I use regularly. I probably check in on Twitter once an hour or once every two hours. And each time that I check in, I'll, I'll be there for like five minutes. And then I close it out. I close out the tab. Instagram, I'll usually check in like once a day. Altogether, my social media usage is easily less than an hour a day. And that's because at some point I had to sit down and say, how am I spending my time every day? If I feel like I'm out of time, if I get to the end of each day and feel like I didn't have enough time for everything, where is that time going? And so I kept a, a time diary for weeks because I wanted to figure out. And I realized that I was on social media for more than three hours a day, even though I really only had like six or seven hours free each day. And I was spending half of it on social media. And that's when I had to stop and say, okay, that's not going to work for me. <laughs> so how much time do I want to spend? And that's when I really, really started to cut back. You know, social media is incredibly powerful and very useful, but its uses are limited. And we have to really be clear on what social media is really good at which is things like disseminating information, the chats that you have, like the Twitter chats that you have, excellent use of social media, linking to articles, sharing information, things like that, um, gathering communities or connecting with people, you know, finding that person from high school they haven't talked to forever. But if you're actually going to have the conversation or the meeting, that needs to happen offline. That's so powerful. And I think a lot of people are listening to this and they haven't heard this in a long time, right? In the day of TikTok and Instagram and, and YouTube and all these platforms, you feel like for many people, they feel like they're missing out if they're not on these social platforms. I've heard this time and time and again, you know, I feel like I'm not on Instagram enough. I'm not on TikTok enough. That may not be the case, right? So here's what we like to talk about too. Your book, Do Nothing, talks about the real dangers of burnout. And I think this is a topic that all of us can relate to. It's a book you wrote about the great resignation. So I would love if you could talk a little bit about this. I feel like this is something, especially now that we're now, you know, two plus years through this pandemic, I think more of us feel burnt out than ever. What are some findings that you thought were interesting? Maybe this will help those who are listening in. You know, oddly enough, I wrote this book in 2016. So I kind of predicted the great designation. Like I knew something like that was coming. Burnout was already in epi epidemic levels, according to the WHO, in 2019, pre-pandemic. And we then we made the wrong decisions during the pandemic. We made decisions that actually added to our feelings of exhaustion and burnout rather than made us feel better. It's time for a real, real examination of our work. Let me, let me ask you this, Winnie. Let's imagine, uh, let's do a thought experiment here. And let's imagine an accountant, right? In, in 1975. And the amount of tasks that accountant has to do, there's not, we're, you know, there's no internet. 
There's no widespread. So obviously that job is going to take him quite a while, right? Since that time, he, he maybe worked his 40 hours a week, but he went home and at the end of the day, he was done. He saw his kids. He went on. He wasn't connected. He didn't have Slack. He didn't answer emails, you know, at 9 p.m. on a Saturday. So here we are all these years later, half a century later. Why is that same accountant still working not only the 40 hours a week at his job, but then going home and doing extra work when we know perfectly well the job takes less time? And that accountant actually sent me an email this weekend and asked me to sign a document and send it back to him. So he was working seven days a week right now because it's tax season. You're right. And you're right. And because of technology, right? So much of it's done digitally now. And so the workload has increased, but I, I'm gathering Celeste, you're probably going to point this out too. Probably he doesn't have, he doesn't even have that many more individual clients. It's just, it's become added work. It's become broader. Yes, we have, there's the the axiom that the the work will expand to fill the time allowed for it. (laughs) So if your boss says you need something, he needs a memo from you written in an hour, it will be done in an hour. But if he says, I need this done by Friday, it'll take till Friday, magically, right? And so what has happened is our, our ideas that working long hours is in of itself a virtue. Like that's how you prove your worth is how hard you're working. We have therefore found a way to make these jobs that are taking less time now than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago. But we have now expanded that work to fill up even more hours. And it's, it's killing us. Like literally the life expectancy has gone down in the United States for years in a row. So we have to be honest with ourselves about how much time this takes. Why are, is our jobs taking longer? Is it because we're so distracted? Is it because we never get into deep focus and are able to really get one thing done at a time? And, or are we padding up all the things that we need to do until it means that we're working long hours? So I want to come back to you on this point because you had mentioned, you know, you predicted this years before the pandemic actually occurred. You wrote the book years before the pandemic. But you said during the pandemic, we did it all wrong. And so I want to come back to that point, Celeste, because I want you to talk about that. What did we do wrong? What could we have done? Now we're kind of looking backwards, right? In the last two years, what are some things in your opinion, what did we do wrong? What could we have done differently? Well, one of the first things that happened was managers became nervous. And they became nervous because everyone who was able to have a job and stay and work remotely started working remotely. And managers started to feel like they needed to clamp down so they could make sure everybody was getting their work done. So people added meetings to the day. Um, People started adding check-ins. This was a very, very bad idea. One of the things that causes burnout is a lack of autonomy. Um, And so making people feel even less autonomous, less independent, and more like you're constantly looking over your shoulder was a terrible idea. Adding more meetings was a terrible idea. Even before the pandemic, most people said that the vast majority of meetings they have last too long and get nothing accomplished. And so adding more to that, awful. Plus we were doing them all by Zoom. Now Zoom is fine, but it has to be extremely limited. One of the things that we know from the research that has come out over the past two years, and some of this research is from uh, came from Microsoft, excellent. They kept brain scans of people 
while they were on Zoom calls, et cetera. So we know Zoom fatigue is, is not just a feeling, it's a real neurological condition. There are a, a lot of reasons which I won't bore you with on why Zoom is particularly exhausting to the brain and the body. And yet we were having people online going from one Zoom call to another Zoom call to a Zoom, another Zoom call, and then we're shocked that they're burnt out. And frankly, I could go in on this at a long time. Another reason is that we allowed our work to claim our entire homes. People would have their laptop at home and they would move from room to room to room just carrying their laptop. This is a terrible idea. Essentially what you're doing is you're training your brain that every part of your home is for work. Meaning that there is no part of your home that you can go into and you can relax. Your brain will remain on alert and ready to, to react to notifications, ready to react to emergencies everywhere in your house even in your bathroom, because let's be honest, people take their phones and their laptops even there. So that it ended up with people not working from home, but living at work. I mean, if you are having trouble with insomnia, for example, one of the first things that a sleep doctor will tell you is um, do nothing in your bed but sleep, because you need to train your brain that the bed is the place for sleep. This is the exact same concept with where you work in your house. You need to choose a place in your home, which is where you work. That's where you take work calls. That's where you check work email. And everywhere else in your home needs to be the place where you do not work. You know, these are just a few. I mean, we made even more mistakes than that, but this is just a few of the mistakes that we made. And it's adding to people's feelings of exhaustion and, and being overwhelmed. And we'll be right back with Celeste after this break. Hey you, I'm Andrew Seaman. Do you want a new job? Or do you want to move forward in your career? Well, you should listen to my weekly show called Get Hired with Andrew Seaman. We talk about it all. And it's waiting for you, yes you, wherever you get your podcasts. And it makes perfect sense when you frame it that way, Celeste. You know, one thing that you had mentioned earlier that I want to circle back on too is you said, well, you have until Friday to finish this. You'll literally take all up until Friday to finish it. If you say I need it within the hour, you'll get it back within the hour. So let me ask you this for that responsibility of burnout, right? Um, how much of it is the individual's responsibility? How much of it is management's responsibility to make sure like you just don't overgo on meetings, right? Zoom fatigue and everything else. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think the vast majority of people's burnout and exhaustion is neither the managers or the employees. It's the system. Um, you know, one of the things that surprised me when I started doing research for the book, Do Nothing, uh, was I kept peeling back the onion. The vast majority of people are ready to blame uh, the burnout epidemic on technology. It is not technology's fault. It's not social media's fault. Social media and technology have made it easier for us to indulge this addiction to productivity, but the cause goes back to the industrial revolution. The cause has roots that are 250 to 300 years old, meaning that we have continually built on this idea that work is its own reward. You know, for most of 300,000 years when human beings were on this planet, we worked less than half the year. 
even in like the peons in the middle ages, we worked less than half a year. We had a task that needed to be done. We got it done and then we relaxed. Right around the industrial revolution, that's when you started getting factory lines where it was just this constant flow of work where our employers kept demanding longer and longer hours of work. And every generation has leaned into that. And then you added in this religious sense that you know idle hands are the devil's playground and any kind of leisure is sinful. And then you add into that this patriotic sense that when you're buying more products and working more hours, you're you're supporting the nation and being patriotic. And you get this trifecta of forces that have created the society in which we think long hours, no matter what we're doing during those long hours, we think working for long hours is good, period. Work is its own reward and its own virtue. That's the real cause of all this. And that's why it's kind of going to take a little bit of a revolution to change it and bring us back to sustainability. We have to do it. Don't get me wrong. It has to be done. And because it's been relatively recent that all this changed, I know that we can change it back. But I don't think it's, there are many things that managers could change. Number one, stop sending emails at any time outside of work hours, because no matter what you say, even if you say to people, go home and relax, they will think that your email means you want to response. And the rest of us need to actually take our vacation time, for example. Stop donating billions of dollars to your employers by not taking your vacation time. So there's things all of us can do to make it better, but we're going to have to change as a society. And Celeste, you know, I think that's really powerful what you've said. I mean, we've seen certain countries that have traditionally been, uh, let's be honest, overworked cultures, right? We've seen, I think it's in Japan and other countries are saying, you know, we're going to test out this four-day work week. And is this is this going in the right direction, Celeste? What are your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I support the four-day work week. I actually support even a three-day work week. Um, we don't need all the hours to put in that that we're using right now. I think honestly that, you know, as a boss, I tell people when you finish your job, go home. When you finished what you need to do, go home. And if that means that you're done in two hours, I'm okay with that. You have a certain amount of expected work that you need to get done. And when it's finished, go home. And I feel the same way about all of our jobs. And, you know, look, the statistics are on my side. The data is on my side. You are, there is a diminishing rate of returns as soon as people start to work long. I'll give just one example. Um, they followed a, a large group of scientists around for a very long period of time to see how they were productive, how many hours they were putting in at work, et cetera, et cetera. And they found that the least productive of them all were those who put in long hours. In other words, 50, 60, sometimes 60 plus hours. They were the least productive. They were working more hours and getting less done. Why? Because the human brain can't work for that long and not make a lot of errors and not lose a lot of its creative uh, thoughts and not lose its innovative thoughts. The most productive were those who worked between 12 and 20 hours a week. So if we were talking about a four-day work week, Celeste, that's like five hours of true work hours a day, right? Yeah. And that's about as long as the human brain can focus. If you look at some of the most productive and, and accomplished people throughout history, Charles Dickens, Henri Poincaré, like Charles Darwin, they worked four hours a day. I'm hearing you. But then there's others that are saying, well, 
how can we do this, right? We're looking at record levels of inflation. We're looking at crazy, you know, expenditures because of the pandemic. And then employers are saying, well, I have record levels of student debt. How am I going to get all this paid if I'm also paying attention to my optimal brain capacity work like yada yada, right? What do you say to that, Celeste? Well, I say you don't cut somebody's pay because they're working fewer hours. A job is a job. You pay them for the job. And if they're getting that job done, it really shouldn't matter. This idea that the butt in the seat has value to you as an employer is very 19th century. Get into the 21st century. That The, the hours that your employer employee is spending in the chair has nothing to do with how good their work is and, and whether they're a good employee. Pay them for the job, not how many hours they're there. We're not on a factory line. Yeah, change with the times. Change with the times. I love that. I remember, Celeste, it wasn't that long ago in the financial industry and the, the firms that I would, especially those big firms, you know, it would be always like, if you leave before this time, then don't bother coming back tomorrow. I remember my manager used to say that, you know, I better see you here until seven, eight o'clock making those cold calls because otherwise, you know, forget about coming next week but it's like your brain can only take so much and i i love what you said that you know the hustle the hustle culture truly problematic you've indicated that much that much as well you're saying three-day work week four-day work week i think a lot of us listening right now like can celeste just make this happen already because i think I we would all agree right <laughs> yeah and i agree with you i mean at certain at a certain time we just get so burnt out we can't function. We might be able to pull it off for a, a short amount of time, right? Maybe a few weeks, but at some point it's going to catch up. And what you said, you know, in the past, people would work maybe half a year, right? They would work when things, you know, grew in the fields and then they would take their rest. What do you think about the next generation? What do they need to do? Because I think, you know, a lot of young people are watching this, like, I feel like I need to just keep working, working to get ahead right? To get that next promotion, to get whatever that next thing is for them. What do you say to that? Um, first of all, I, I have a lot of optimism about um, the millennials and especially Gen Z. They have a lot, you know, I'm Gen X. Um, uh, Gen Z especially has a lot less tolerance for the BS that we put up with. Um, and they seem to understand uh, that there are things that are more important that they need to focus on, things like well-being, you know, again, I was talking about the fact that life expectancy has gone down in the U.S. for years. The The doctor that was the lead author of the report from, I think, 2019, when they asked this doctor why the, the life expectancy was declining in the U.S., he said despair. And I think the younger generations at this point are feeling that despair, perhaps more than older generations, because things are so stacked against them. I think that they're beginning to realize that well-being if you don't have well-being, almost nothing else matters. Our management structures are stuck in a 19th century mindset. They have done studies. For example, they they studied a, a large marketing firm in New York and realized that the managers actually couldn't tell which employees were staying for were working for 50, 60 hours a week and which employees were leaving at 38.5. They couldn't tell. Which means that whole idea, what you're talking about, which is so common of don't, if you can't stay here till 7 p.m., don't bother coming tomorrow. That's crap. They don't, they can't tell based on your, your work, the quality of your work or how much you get done. They can't tell who's there and who isn't. So come on, let it go. I think the younger generations are beginning to understand this. And I think the, the great resignation and the fact that there's a work shortage in the United States is a reflection of that. 
um, that people at this point are like, look, I'm not going to put up with it. Well, let me ask you this, Celeste. You know, people are watching this and thinking this. I think a lot of people are wondering. I know there's been, I think uh, just last week, Goldman Sachs had an announcement saying that they expect everybody back in the office five days a week. We also see the great resignation. We see people wanting that better quality of life, that hybrid or working remotely. I know uh, several people that I've met will say, I took this job because they uh, embrace remote work. What are your feelings about that? How important is it to be all in the same space? Do you think the future is hybrid? Do you think the future is remote? Do you have a, a sense of what that would be like? Do you think which uh, one would be better than the other for your brain? Understanding that every job is different. And so everyone's going to find a, a, their own unique solution. I do think that hybrid in general is probably the way to go. Forcing people to go back into the work every day, you know, workers have made their views clear. They don't want to do that. So forcing them to do that is a, is a, a level of aggression on an employer's part, which is counterproductive. Yeah, I guess you can force people to do that. But one of the things that causes that is a symptom of burnout is cynicism. Once your employee goes into burnout, you've got trouble. Not only are they, they're either going to be not productive for a very long period of time, or they're going to leave and turnover. Every business person knows that turnover is extraordinarily expensive. So Goldman Sachs, I roll my eyes at you. You are smarter than this. Don't do this. This is a bad idea. However, the in-person interaction that we have is really, really crucial in order to have great teamwork, in order to have good, healthy communication. It, when you don't have any kind of in-person hours, you end up overusing Zoom, which as I've explained, is extraordinarily exhausting to the brain. So that's why I think hybrid is is probably, especially knowledge workers. Obviously, if, if you work in McDonald's, you have to be at the McDonald's. Um, but for those of us who are able to work remotely, hybrid is probably the solution. Solution, right? So when you work independently, you can turn on the camera, you can be comfortable, you can have that work-life balance, you can do the laundry, you get your stuff done exactly. as long as your work gets exactly. done. And then periodically you meet with your team in person for that, for a true conversation, right? Like you were yeah, saying. Yeah, absolutely. As long as the managers don't see that as a, as a, as a opportunity to micromanage, you don't add meetings, check-in meetings for your employee that's working remotely. If they're not getting their work done, that's a problem, but don't add any of those check-ins until they're not getting their missing deadlines and not getting work done. Don't preemptively assume they're going to screw up. So powerful. So important. It's such an important conversation here. I love this. Thank you, Celeste, for sharing this. Let me ask you this. I want you to talk about do nothing. Tell us about do nothing. Doing nothing? Well, I didn't mean literally do nothing. I just meant do nothing uh, that has commercial value. <laughs> I mean, get, get some of those hobbies that are kind of worthless. You know, previous generations did all kinds of stuff that was not that couldn't be added to their CV, that you couldn't post on social media and um, increase the value of your brand, right? Things like rock polishing and stamp collecting and macrame. People had hobbies. You know, one of the reasons the pandemic was so difficult for people is they, they were stuck at home and they had nothing to do that wasn't connected to work. Find out what are the things that you like. I mean, you and I were talking before with the this live stream began about the fact that we both garden. I, I garden because I want to grow my own herbs for cooking. I don't make particularly beautiful food. <laughs> no one is going to be liking those pictures of my lovely food on Instagram, but it tastes great. Find your open and closed times. If you had the store of Winnie Sun, 
right? What are your shop hours? What time do you open? What time do you close? You need to establish those. And when you flip that sign over to closed, it needs to be real. It's not closed unless you come to the door and knock, and then I'll go ahead and open up and check my email real quick. It needs to be closed. Celeste, thank you so much for sharing so much with us already. I'm loving this conversation. You know, my first question to you, of course, we give you two questions in two minutes. In your case, I'm almost giving you almost three questions because I want to ask you so much. But the first question is, you know, you've interviewed and talked to thousands of people in your lifetime. If you could pick still someone that you haven't had a chance to talk to yet, but would love to, who would that be? And the second part of my question is, Celeste, what's your favorite question to ask guests? So probably the person I would want to talk to is Michelle Obama. I think there's a lot of questions for her in terms of trying to uh, remain sane in an essentially insane uh, arena, which is what she did for eight years. We all knew she didn't particularly enjoy having to be involved in politics, and yet she rose above so beautifully. Plus there's the fact that she's a Black woman in America, so the odds were stacked against her. I have a ton of questions for Michelle Obama. Never gotten the chance to interview her. And my favorite question to ask to, to people is usually the very last one I ask, which is, um, what should I have asked you that I didn't? <laughs> what, did I, what did I miss here? Or what did you come prepared to talk to, talk about that you haven't had a chance to talk about yet? That's my favorite one because people surprise you with what they say they wanted to be asked about. I love that question. I might have to borrow that. That's a brilliant question. Absolutely. I should ask you that. What What did I not ask you, Celeste, that I should have asked you? <laughs> Probably you, you could have asked me how well I dealt, since I have all this advice to people about the pandemic, how I dealt with it, because I'm a work in progress and I messed up as much as anybody else did. Um, but, so tell yeah. us, how did you deal with the pandemic? We want to know. Well, you know, I, most of my living um, as of 2019 and, and supposedly in 2020, I make from my public speaking. Um, and so when the pandemic began, I lost somewhere between $250,000, in, $300,000 in canceled and rescheduled events. So I made the wrong decision. In order to stay afloat, I sort of panicked and I started taking pretty much I took too many jobs <laughs> um, and then I started juggling them and I became really, really quickly overwhelmed. So it was about halfway through the pandemic that I started realizing, wow, it was my fear. I allowed my fear to take over and uh, my fear was making my schedule and I need to calm down, be okay, and like start saying no and canceling things. So, you know, here I am on the other side of that. I'm able to smile and be happy about it because I have pared down my schedule quite a bit. But yeah, I'm, I am I muffed it up at first. Well, you know, just to show, if even Celeste can muff it up, then we all need to give ourselves a little grace because you know we all do it too. All right. Yeah. So this kind of segues perfectly to my second question, Celeste, and that is that, you know, I do believe, and I'm sure you believe, we all believe that everyone has their own yes factor or AKA superpower. I want to know what would you say that yours is? So I, I think that my superpower is um, being able to explain very, very complicated things in a really simple, understandable way. You know, I think this is something that made me a, a better journalist, that I was able to sift through sometimes really complicated stories on war and on economics and on 
complex systems and, and systemic racism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, political systems. And I have a gift for for boiling them down to the essential components, what the story is really about, and then explaining it in a way that people can understand and then find relevant for their own lives. This is super important when you're having to read a lot of scientific studies. Um, scientists, as you probably know, are kind of like economists. They're not always the best at <laughs> relaying their message in an, in an engaging and <laughs> entertaining way. Um, but I have friendships with a lot of scientists who really are really happy that I will not only read their studies, but then translate in them into actual human language. <laughs> so I think that's my superpower. I'll tell you on weekends and most evenings, I spend very little time on social media. It's part of work and I keep it to the work day. What about you? Is that what you do? Does today's episode surprise you, make you look at your daily dose of social a little differently? Reach out and let me know your perspective. Please follow me here. Look me up on LinkedIn or anywhere else at Use Social and say hello. It'd be great to hear from you. To learn more about me or to book a professional speaker for your next event, please visit winniesun.com. Join me again next week as we share another brand new episode of The Yes Factor with you. Thank you and be well.